Hello, this is Hannah Langdell and Rose Strada, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Amber Lees to discuss congenital hand surgery. Dr. Lees is an associate professor in the Department of Plastic Surgery at UC Irvine School of Medicine, where she also serves as their program director. Dr. Lees earned a bachelor's degree from Oregon State University Honors College and went on to earn her medical degree from Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She completed her plastic surgery residency at Loma Linda University and an additional fellowship in orthopedic hand surgery at the University of Southern California. We are really looking forward to welcoming Dr. Lees to Durham this summer as an instructor in the Duke Flap course. Thank you, Dr. Lise, for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me. So do you know yet what flaps you'll be dissecting for the flap course? Have they given you any information? Uh, yes, I have a subset of intrinsic hand flaps, so small hand flaps. I think they've divided that among two of the guests because there are a number of hand specialists who are attending this year. Awesome. Oh, that's really well, exciting. Yeah, we're, so uh, we're very excited to be back in person after a couple of years of being virtual, and it'll be fun to have everyone together again. Um, but today we're going to talk about something a little bit uh, different from those flaps, but I guess similar and speaking about congenital hand surgery. So how did you become interested in pediatric hand surgery? So I think even just getting interested in hand surgery was something that as a uh, medical student, I had almost no exposure to hand as a subset of plastic surgery. And then in the residency that I completed, we didn't get exposure to hand until we were about in our third year. And so we did this dedicated rotation that was hand surgery with one of our Kaiser affiliates. And I worked with a couple of hand surgeons there who are incredibly influential, um, but that's not a very big congenital hand population. So maybe once every four to six months, they had this congenital hand clinic where they would see like these, you know, like four or five patients that had been referred. And I happened to be there on rotation during one of these um, clinics. And it was just all these really fascinating, like things that I had read about in textbooks, but never seen. They were really, really interesting cases. The patients were loads of fun to examine. And so then when I decided to be a hand surgeon and go to hand fellowship, I had this kind of soft spot already for pediatric and fortunately matched into a fellowship where they did it uh, almost six months of the experience had pediatric elements to that included plexus and, and other things. And I just found it so much fun to interact with the patients there. They do therapy for themselves. Basically you give them toys. These are not patients who are like, um, trying to get out of working or doing things. They're just like joyful and want to get better. And it was really impactful to know that I was changing kids' lives. And then the cases are just really interesting. They're very delicate. They embody a lot of what I think makes plastic surgery so great is coming up with these tailored treatments for really unique problems. So everything about it was just captivating to me. So when I started looking for a job, it was really essential to find a place where I had an opportunity to practice that. I was really lucky to find that at Irvine. Yeah, that's wonderful. I agree with you. The exposure, you know, at Duke as well, we've started to have some hand surgery rotations earlier on, but, you know, with some faculty leaving the past couple of years, I've seen maybe one or two cases of, you know, congenital hand surgery. And it's, I agree, something that it's, it's hard to get exposure to. So that's great. You found a program, a fellowship that had at least six months, which seems uh, unique. There's such a wide spectrum of things you can do as well. So when your experience is limited, I feel like you you see so, so very little of what you can do. Do you have like a favorite type of procedure or something that maybe you didn't get exposure to until later that you had no idea was so fun? Um, I think probably there are two procedures that come to mind when you ask that question. One of them is policization. I never saw that as a trainee and I got to see it once as a fellow. And it was something that was just talked about so much as being like, 
the epitome of plastic surgery. It was like form, function, all of these things. You know, it was like this just hallowed procedure. And so then when I actually got to see one, I was like, oh, it is all those things. It's absolutely wonderful. It's just magical to do. <laughs> and so I, I love that operation. And then pediatric plexus, which I think was kind of a black box for me as a resident, for sure, even as a trainee. And then as I started in practice was one of the things that challenged me the most, but it is such a fun, fun procedure and such great, great patients. No, those are great cases. Um, so in general, at what age do you start operating on a child with congenital hand abnormality and what considerations do you take into account when deciding you know, when to start? It's a great question. So some of the things that you may remember from your you know, cleft rotations is that there are certain rough ideals about how safe it is to take a child to surgery, how much they should weigh, what their hematocrit uh, could be. That's the Millard criteria. Um, but really the things that I'm looking at are timelines for development of motor skills uh, and safety for anesthesia and risk of waiting to a point where we're damaging function. And so all of those things taken into consideration kind of create a couple of time points where we often do procedures for kids for almost everything that we do in hand, six months is about the earliest that I will operate on a congenital hand difference because there are very few uh, developmental milestones that are happening before that that I need to intervene on. A lot of the cognitive pathways that are built around integrating the thumb into daily use develop at about a year old. So that's oftentimes when we do operations that are related to the thumb. And then there are some things like syndactyly that we'll try and monitor because if you have you know, border digits that are fused, that can affect the growth of the other one. So we're looking at growth, looking at development, and then trying to correlate that to safety with anesthesia. But I think probably six months would be the earliest. And that's for some minor stuff or some essential things. And then one year is really common for thumb things. And then things that can wait, I like to wait as long as possible. So if there's central digits and daclays, I'll wait until the kids are like four to five, if I can convince the parents to hang on that long. <laughs> yeah, it's important to know is, you know, oftentimes we're consulted, you know, either uh, inpatient when babies are born or shortly thereafter. And so just to give parents kind of an idea of, you know, you're okay, hang on and we'll, we'll connect you to the right folks. So. Yeah, that's a great point. We have a, a really good maternal medicine program here. So we've started getting some prenatal diagnoses for some things. Yeah. And so it's like, talk about getting the child in early. They're still in utero, right? But what, <laughs> um, what is so nice about that is you get to establish a rapport with the parents and then you get to lay out this pathway for them. Like, oh, that's wonderful. Everything's fine. We don't have to do anything. We're just going to do splinting and stretching and I'll see you in a couple months. And you tell them what the future looks like. And it just allows them to kind of grapple with this like sudden change because very few of these diagnoses get picked up prenatally. It's a rare one that you see prenatal. Most of them are something they figure out after the child's born. And then they're like, oh my gosh, what does this mean? Are they going to be normal? Can they go to school? Will they have a job? And it's a lot of just reassurance and kind of letting them know what the future looks like. Yeah. That's interesting. What does the kind of longitudinal process look like? It like seems, sounds like there's like a good continuity of care. You get to see these patients kind of grow and you make sure that they're still developing. Right. And these aren't just like one-off surgeries, obviously, but do you, do you enjoy that part of it? Oh, I love that. I do a lot of um, outreach for medical students and undergrad students for like this, you know, science, technology, medicine kind of connections. And there's this group of undergrad students that rotate through our children's hospital right now. And at the lecture, I gave them about plastic surgery. They were like, oh, the last doctor that talked to us was a pediatrician. And he said, you don't want to be a surgeon because they never get to know their patients. And I was like, that is bananas. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> I was like, I see these kids when they're infants. I see them all through their growing stages. I follow them until skeletal maturity. And so they're in their teens, you know, at that point. And some of them I see, I transition them to my adult practice over at the university hospital. So no, you get, you get really good long-term connection with a lot of these more complicated cases. You know, if it's just like a small little extra small finger skin tag kind of thing, maybe I only see them for a couple months, but 
least complex thing because you're going to see those kids forever. That's truly lovely. So the first condition we'd like to discuss is preaxial polydactyly. Uh, So just to review, the conditions most commonly described using the Wassel classification, which is based on the level of thumb duplication. So briefly, type 1 is a bifid distal phalanx. Type 2 is a duplicated distal phalanx. Type 3 is a bifid proximal phalanx. Type 4 is a duplicated proximal phalanx. Type 5 is a bifid metacarpal. Then type 6 is a duplicated metacarpal. And type 7 is characterized by triphalangism. So Dr. Lise, when you're evaluating a child with thumb duplication, what are you looking for on x-ray or physical exam uh, to determine your surgical approach? So excellent question. I'm going to offer one little uh, historical tidbit before I jump into that. So we often call this the Wassel classification, but a lot of surgeons have started transitioning to calling it the Wassel flat classification. And that's because Wassel was a fellow working for Adrian Flats, and he independently, without permission, uh, did some chart review and wrote up this criteria and published it without putting his mentor's name on it or getting permission to do this with his patients and was subsequently fired from his fellowship. And that was the end of his hand career. Oh, wow. I did not know that. You did that? Oh, my God. <laughs> really controversial story, right? Uh, and cautionary tale also. So a lot of practicing surgeons now will call it the Wassel flat classification or the flat classification to give credit to the gentleman whose patients is actually working Fair enough. Based on. Thank you. I, yeah. Yeah, I think I advocate for just the, the flat classification. After yeah. that, so so <laughs> there, there's your little historical tidbit. Yeah. Um, so great question. So these patients often come in fairly early. This is not one that I routinely see delayed presentations because it's a very obvious difference. The parents notice it um, and they want something done about it immediately. And so the things that I'm going to look at are fitting a plain film, and that's going to help me determine what classification of duplication it is, which ultimately doesn't make a huge difference in how I manage it. It just kind of gives me some groundwork to talk to the family about what needs to be done. So some of the more distal duplications, like the type one or two, we don't have as much worry about like the collateral ligament instability or or issues like that, but we may have more concerns about the nail bed deformity that happens. And so it just kind of guides the way I counsel the family. Um, Some of the things that I really like to point out to the parents is I'll have them put both of the child's thumbs next to each other. And I point out that on the where they're duplicated, both of the duplicates are smaller than the non-duplicated them. And parents don't usually realize this. And if you don't tell them ahead of time, when they have the surgical reconstruction, they'll be like, why is that thumb smaller than the other one? And you're like, oh, it was always smaller. You know, in the embryologic process, there was a cell mass that split and it's not like it was, you know, 200% of normal cells. It was like, you know, each side's getting 75%. And so you've got to point out to them that there is a difference in the size. Um, I also like to talk to families about secondary surgeries. That's a really important thing to mention is that uh, these kids are really small. If things don't get lined up perfectly, they can develop some uh, tendon imbalances as they grow. And so you just want to keep following them throughout their growing years and make sure that there's nothing that needs to be addressed. And then if the kids have a strong family history, I might have some genetic concern for them, but it's usually the kids who have triphalangeal them that are highest risk for having a genetic component. Those kids, I will always send for a genetic workup. Um, the rest of them, I just kind of suss out the family history. Like, is there anyone else that had this? How, how much of a prevalence do we need to worry about? And then surgical timing, I like to think about for these kids, just kind of like we had talked about before, a lot of that cognitive patterning is happening at about a year old. 
So I try and operate on them somewhere between a year and two years of age, just so that as they're integrating their thumb into their daily life, they're integrating something that resembles what their final thumb will be. I have had one family in my entire practice show up quite delayed for this. And the child was, I can't remember if she was four or five at the time that they brought her into the clinic, which is that I think she was like a lawful two or four duplication, you know, the more common ones. And her family had waited because they were concerned about surgery at a young age. But then when I operated on her at four to five years old and we took the cast off at the first post-op visit, the child just started crying hysterically because she was missing this part that she'd always had. And she was saying, my baby's gone, my baby's gone. And I will tell you, there's nothing that will break your heart. Like seeing that happen to your patient. I was like, okay. So as much as I can, I encourage families to make these changes sooner just because I don't want to stress the kid out later in life. And, and that is a story that I tell families who are interested in waiting on that one. I'm like, let's, let's try and get that one done by the time they're two. I think, and you mentioned um, that you're not as worried about the collateral ligaments in the more distal classifications. <laughs> Pardon <Yeah>. me. <laughs> so so call it a sort of you kind of think about that and, um, and like, what's your technique for reconstructing or like, how do you preserve basically? Excellent question. So the um, wassail flat or flat classifications (laughs) that you have to worry about collateral ligament are when you start to get into duplications more proximally in that proximal phalanx. So that's going to be like your type threes and type fours. Um, And for those kids, the bones are really soft. The cartilage is still really, really malleable. And so what I try and do is do kind of a subperiosteal resection and shave off the portion of the, um, I mean, it's cartilaginous almost at this stage of development for most kids portion of the proximal phalanx that still has the collateral ligament inserted on it. And then just reconstruct that to the uh, remaining digit, the parts that I leave behind and vicral suture is usually sufficient for most of these kids. We're going to use them in a, leave them in a caster splint for about four to six weeks while they heal. And sometimes I put a pin to fixate things during the healing process that just comes out in clinic. Uh, But the, the tissues are much more malleable than adult tissues. This is not like you have to do suture anchors or something like that, like you would for an adult. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I had a couple other just technical questions. You mentioned revisionary procedures about, you know, tendon balancing. Do you ever need to perform extensor flexor tendon transfers like during the initial operation? And then the other question was, um, is there a role for corrective osteotomies in preventing postoperative angular deformities either initially, or is that something you watch for later on? Great questions, Hannah. Um, so every child will have a slightly different presentation and you don't know exactly what's duplicated or how it's duplicated until you get into surgery. I always tell the families I'm going to realign whatever I find. Uh, and so for those more proximal level duplications, those are the ones that are more likely to have duplicated extensors or duplicated flexors or anomalous uh, intrinsic muscles. And so for those patients, especially, I tell the families, we're going to do some realignment. If there is anything that I find that's bifurcated, so bifurcated extensors or bifurcated flexor, I always preserve both parts of it and just effectively transfer to the one that I leave behind or realign them. However, you want to think about that. Um, if I'm doing a, a procedure where I have uh, inserted uh, abductor onto the like proximal phalanx, so for those kids who have those duplications like uh, three and four, then I just make sure that that gets reinserted at the time that we do the reconstruction, just trying to put everything back as close to normal as possible. And yes, Osteotomies is an excellent question. So depending on what those preoperative films show me, there may be substantial deviation of the bones already at the stage that we're going to be operating. And I can do primary osteotomies at the time of reconstruction to try and make it as straight as possible. But then we just monitor as the child grows to make sure nothing is like growing abnormally and, and nothing needs to be done secondarily. 
And then another procedure that I had read about, but I've never really seen before is called the uh, Bilhout Cloquet procedure, which basically, from my understanding, describes resecting kind of the central portions of the duplicated digits and then fusing the retained peripheral portions. And then there was another case of an uh, on-the-top plasty. If one thumb is better developed proximally and the other thumb is better developed distally, you could use that. Is that a procedure that you use in your practice? So when I was training, we talked, and I think it's French, so I don't know if it's Bilhaut Cloquet or exactly how it's pronounced, but we're going to, we're all talking about the same thing. I think people, your listeners will know what we're talking about. Uh, That is a very old procedure that was developed in uh, the late 1800s. And so what I was taught as a trainee is that, you know, it's like any surgery that was developed in the 1800s is probably out of date. Uh, I've been told that it was really disruptive to the nail plate and resulted in these like terrible cosmetic deformities and should never be done for patients. Um, but I think that probably also the surgical techniques that were being used in the late 1800s were probably not quite as refined as what we're doing today. And so there are some surgeons who do that routinely that have phenomenal results. I personally have not done one, um, but Jane Shen, who you can follow on Instagram is just an outstanding uh, congenital hand surgeon in China. And her results for this type of procedure are mind boggling. They're beautiful. The advantage of doing something like that is you take, you know, like I was saying, you've got these like 75, 80% of normal width thumbs, and you have the opportunity to make something that more closely matches the other side, because you can choose how much you put together. The on top plasty is something I haven't done either. I think there probably may come a time when I have a patient where I'm like, oh yes, that's the right patient for that. But that child has not showed up in my clinic yet. Fair enough. Yeah. No, I was wondering, it just, uh, it seemed creative, but wasn't sure how often it was actually used. And then you talked a little bit about casting, like thinking post-operative care. Obviously these are kids. You can't really tell them when to move, when not to move. How, how long after surgery do you usually like begin the active range of motion and let them out of their cast? This is a great question. Actually, there's a couple of things that I'll probably tell you about this. Um, so the primary reason for casting some kids, I guess, you know, for the ones that we're doing ligament reconstruction, we actually have a reason to hold them together and, and keep them in one place. Um, but for a lot of kids, you're just casting them to keep the wound clean because there's no other way to protect it from their mouth and all the stuff that they are going to stick their hand in. And kids will put their hand a lot of dirty places. And so I've started using a material called soft cast, which looks a lot like fiberglass, but unwraps kind of like Coban when it's time to come off for those kids, because it's so much easier to take the cast on and off in clinic. You don't have to use a cast saw with a one-year-old, which is a highly traumatizing experience also. Um, uh, but yes, so, <laughs> so if it's just soft tissue stuff, you know, it's like, if it's just a syndactyly or something that I'm trying to keep a wound clean, I just cast them for two weeks. If I have ligament reconstructions or bony work that I want to hold for longer, somewhere in four to six weeks. And one of the magical things about children is you could do a flexor tendon repair and cast them for six weeks. And all you have to do is take the cast off and they will start moving and they will do their own therapy with their toys. And you don't even have to send them to therapy. They will regain all of their motion. So you at the point that you take their cast off or splint off, you just have to be ready to let them go unrestricted because you cannot restrict a child. There's no logical explaining to them that they can't lift more than five pounds. Um, So that kind of guides when we, when we let them out. And once we let them out, it's just like, you're understanding that you're letting them out to unrestricted activity. (laughs) Sometimes the same way with adults too, really. So (laughs) (laughs) you're not wrong. (laughs) Let's go one of two ways. I feel like (laughs) that's a decent way. So we can move on to thumb hypoplasia if you guys want the next thing that we'll cover is thumb hypoplasia. Um, so it's described using the Blouth classification type one is a minor hypoplasia type two, um, includes UCL insufficiency first web space narrowing and intrinsic thinner muscle atrophy. 
Type three has extrinsic muscle abnormalities. And in 3A, the CMC is stable. And in 3B, the CMC is unstable. And then type four is a pounce flautant or floating thumb. (laughs) And type five is thumb aplasia. So um, I guess if you could tell us a little bit about your experience with these, like how common are they? And then we can have, we have some questions that we also want to ask you about them too. Absolutely. So I was like, I think I did take French in college. So it's (laughs) flotant. (laughs) Um, that that one, I know for sure. It just means floating them. Um, the way that I like to structure this. So if you're in training and you're thinking about how to study for your exams and you're like, cause this is a very heavily tested topic, you know, anything that can be broken down into an algorithm or classification is something they love on the exams. So I like to think about this as one is just small, a two, you're missing intrinsic things, the things that are inside the hand, a three, you're now missing extrinsic things. So you're moving from like smaller issues to bigger issues each time. And then it's just attached by a skin bridge and then it's gone. And so if you can think about small intrinsic deficiency, extrinsic deficiency, floating gone, that sometimes allows you to like remember in your head where, where you are in the algorithm. And then obviously that's tied to what kind of treatments we offer patients. So that's you know, why, why people love to test it. This is a pretty common hand abnormality or hand difference is what I should say. I think with a lot of things, we just kind of guesstimate what the incidence is, but I think the accepted incidence is something like one in 100,000 births. It's uh, often on both sides. It is very often associated with some type of other congenital hand difference, most often radial deficiency, but sometimes spinal deficiency. So there's, when you see these kids coming into the office, you have to be really cognizant that there may be other issues that you need to be watching out for. And I know that it seems counterintuitive to think that a child could be walking into your office with an obvious thumb deficiency. And that could be the first time that they're seeing a doctor for any of the other things that are going on, but it happens more often than you realize that the child comes in and you do the workup and they have like, you know, thrombocytopenia absent radius, or they have bacterial or they have hold orum. And you're like, okay, well, you know, why had nobody caught that before? I don't know, but here we are. So with these kids, you really have to have a high level of suspicion for just looking for those other things. And then one of the often common uh, test questions is whether, you know, the thumb is reconstructable and that depends a lot on whether the CMC joint is stable. So is this differentiation usually made on exam? Do you use x-ray or ultrasound uh, to help differentiate like 3A from 3B? It's a great question. So I will definitely use x-ray. That's a big part of our practice is plain films. And I just do clinical exam at that point. And so I just do some kind of like grind testing, some stress testing, and just see how stable the thumb is. You know, kids are really good at grabbing things. So I have them grab my fingers and get a sense of how well I can pull out of that grasp um, just to see how strong and stable things are. And then because this is a surgery that we're not doing until they're closer to a year of age, and they're sometimes coming in earlier than that, we have the opportunity to watch them as they grow and see if anything is changing. Um, because sometimes it's easier to appreciate things on plain film as they get older than when they first come in. That makes sense. So when you're thinking about, um, specifically like types two, a and three, a what techniques do you use for UCL reconstruction and opponents plasty? I know we talked about, you know, you don't necessarily need bone anchors and things like that in kids with cartilage, but what's your technique? Yeah. This is a great question. So uh, opponent's plasty is another area that people love to test because there are really just like four common types of opponent's plasties. And the ones that are most commonly used for kids are the Huber, which is the one that uses the um, hypothenar muscles or the abductor digiti minimi, or there is a name associated with it. It's the reordin, but it's the FDS to the ring finger. And those are the two that you're going to see most commonly for pediatric patients. Um, We don't use the Huber for adults at all because it's just not strong enough, but for kids, it tends to work out okay. 
Uh, it's probably not the best ultimately. And we don't love to take the EIP for them because usually for kids that have a need for opposition transfer, they have some ligament instability. And so an advantage of taking the FDS to the ring finger is you're going to have extra tendon. It's more length than you actually need. So then you use that extra tendon as your graft for the collateral ligament repair. Mm-hmm. And that's like a, a really nice way to maximize all of your donors in one. And so my, my practice is to do usually the, um, Huber transfer in the very young kids, the infants, and to use the reordin for the kids who have collateral ligament insufficiency. I have had one child come in when he was like 13 years old that was um, pretty stable and didn't have any other issues. And so I did do an index finger a EIP transfer for him, but usually it's going to be FDS to the ring finger or um, Huber. So let's say the CMC is not stable. Uh, how do you talk to parents about polycization or if parents are very uh, I guess hesitant to move forward with it, are there other options like a toe to thumb or even a non-vascularized metatarsal that you would consider if they're adamant they don't want polycization or ways to try to make the CMC joint stable? These are great questions. Um, and I think really, really timely for what a lot of people are publishing on to kind of like push some boundaries in hand surgery. Um, the kids that I think are hardest to offer the polycization to their parents are the kids who are the three B. Um, because those kids have something that kind of looks like a normal thumb and the families are like, wait, you want to cut that off? Why, why would you cut that off? It's there. Um, the kids who have the four where it's just kind of dangling like a little skin tag, that's a lot easier to explain that it doesn't work. Uh, and the kids that have no thumb at all, that's really easy to explain that it doesn't work. Um, so there is a, like a graduated level of difficulty in having this conversation. One of the things that I find most helpful is I have videos of kids who were, you know, a year out from policization and 10 years out from policization. And I just kind of show the families what it looks like. And like, you know, you actually, it's a lot harder to appreciate that it's a three fingered hand than I think most people um, realize, you know, it's like when families are thinking about sacrificing one finger to make another, they're imagining it looking really, really deforming. And so it's nice to kind of reassure them by just showing them examples of other cases. But to talk about toe transfer, which I think is really interesting, when we structure toe transfer in our head, when we're thinking like thumb reconstruction for adult traumatic injury, one of the prerequisites for that is that you have to have a stable CMC joint. And so you're like, well, obviously that can't work because these kids don't have a stable CMC. And that's actually not true. Uh, We get to break the rules a little bit here when it comes to pediatric patients. So for the peds patients, you can actually take a longer, you can take the second toe with a longer portion of the metatarsal and kind of make like a pseudoarthrosis to represent the CMC and just do like a proper full length second toe transfer. Those are not the most beautiful results. They're not quite as long as you want them to be, but sometimes families are really adamant that they do not want to sacrifice a finger. And so that's an option for them. And then for the kids who are falling into that 3B category, and for some people who are really pushing the envelope, the four, you can do either vascularized or non-vascularized second toe MTP joint transfers. And this is, again, kind of like people really pushing the envelope to offer something fascinating to kids. Uh, I haven't yet had a family who's been willing to do that with me, but I am really looking for the right, right patient to offer that procedure because it gives you a chance to reconstruct the unstable CMC joint for those 3B kids. Um, And then you still do all the opposition transfers, UCL reconstruction, all the other stuff that they need, but you haven't taken their index finger. And they actually get pretty good results for that. And there there are people who are doing some little rotational flaps to make that work for the type fours, but I'd be a little more anxious about starting with that one. I'll try it on a 3B first. Do you think that's the way things are headed for 3Bs? Is that becoming more popular or do you think still a will be kind of the mainstay? 
I mean, I think politicization has a really good track record. I think when enough people have enough long-term data about how these kids do into adolescence and adulthood, then then we'll be able to make a really good assessment of like who has better grip strength, who has better range of motion. You know, it, the politicized index finger is a great operation, but there are limitations. It's not perfect for everybody. Some of these syndromic kids have stiff index fingers to start out with. And so then they get stiff thumb reconstructions. So it's, it's not like it's a perfect operation. It's beautiful and it's elegant, but it's not like it gives them you know, a perfect result. And so I think time will tell on these, on these long-term outcomes for this time being politicization is standard. I, I would not, you know, go into your in-service exam saying like non-vascularized tuck transfer. Yes, no, yeah, for our listeners, no. uh, this is kind of a, some outside the box stuff here, but uh, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I love about them is that, you know, all of these things look so different, but they all originate on the same embryologic failure. And it's just a matter of whether or not there was too much or not enough sonic hedgehog, which, which way things went, whether it was duplicated or too small, which I just think is really cool. Yes. Something we always have to <laughs> review before the exam. <laughs> Absolutely. Sonic hedgehog. Um, okay. So our last thing that we wanted to talk about was syndactyly. So um, this is classified as simple when there's only soft tissue structures involved um, in, in the webbing. And then it's complex when there are bone or fingernails of adjacent fingers involved. Um, with complete syndactyly, the entire length of the adjacent digits are involved with the webbing. And then in incomplete syndactyly, the webs don't extend the entire length of the digit. So we wanted to kind of start by just an overview. When you see like a complex case of syndactyly like Apert syndrome, how do you decide where to start? And like, how do you think of staging the procedure in your head? It's a great question. So apron is a little bit, it's like, it's a, a separate animal for sure than just regular old run of the mill syndactyly. Um, the aprons kids are great. I love taking care of them. Uh, most of the time these kids are going to get, well, I was like, let me back up a little bit there. We classify them on this kind of type one, two or three category where it's like the mitten, the spade, the rosebud, you know, it's like things that kind of makes sense, but don't exactly make sense. It never made sense to me as a trainee, what the difference between a mitten and a spade was. It was like, aren't those basically the same thing? And they're very, very slight differences. So those, those, whether you want to like group those together and say the mitten and the spade uh, and the rosebud, I think the type one and two are easier to treat for sure. The rosebud is really, really difficult to treat. And so we'll, we'll focus on the easier ones to start. Those kids have to have a couple operations. They have to have, you know, because you can't do both sides of the syndactyly release simultaneously. So I offer the families, um, depending on if the thumb needs something to kind of stage those in different ways, but we'll just look at the child and decide if we're going to do the um, third web space first, or if we're going to do the um, second and fourth. And I always talk to them about skin graft. These are kids that definitely need skin graft. I I prefer to take it from either the wrist crease, the bowler wrist crease, which I know everybody says is terrible because it's going to make the child look like they committed suicide. And that's not true. You're a plastic surgeon. You can close that nicely. It's a very well-hidden, beautiful scar in the long term. Um, other than that, for the kids who have the rosebud who need so much skin graft, I do take that from the lower abdomen and make it look kind of like a, you know, where you put your tummy tuck incision. Um, and I never take the groin because inevitably that turns dark and gets hair as the child grows older. And it's just not something I like to do to my patients. The rosebuds, because those fingertips are all fused and you just have this bony mass at the end of the hand, those require a first stage that is a lot of osteotomy and release to just try and get the hand in kind of a flat plane. So the goal of the first stage operation for those kids is to convert them into something that looks like a type one or type two. And then you just take them down the same kind of treatment pathway that you would a type one or type two. 
there are people that have advocated for doing the feet at the same time to do all four extremities at the same time. When I first started in practice, I was like, yes, I will do everything. I'll do the both hands. I will do the feet. We'll do one big operation. And it was just like, you never had enough skin graft for everything. It was really long. It was really exhausting. And so I've started just telling families, I like to do the hands. I'll stick with the hands. And if they really want the feet, we can address that later. But I, I don't think the results of the feet are that great. And it doesn't functionally help them that much. Um, those kids usually um, have some other surgical considerations going on, you know, they've got like cranial vault procedures. And so the timing for them can be a little bit outside of what you might normally think of for syndactyly. And we just kind of work around whatever else is going for them. Uh, and then the closest I would stage things together would be three months apart, but oftentimes it ends up going a little bit longer just because they have so much else going on in their lives. And then sometimes we're tested on kind of how much you can divide the digits. And this is, from my understanding, based on kind of where the bifurcation is for the, the blood supply, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you think through your skin incisions and then how you intraoperatively kind of assess how far you can divide? This is another great question. Um, so for for the apron syndactyly releases, we do those with a straight line. And the reason for that is, is that aprids children have like simple angiosin. and their joints do not bend normally. And so you can do a straight line release and you don't have to worry about linear scar contracture. So the incision planning for them is, is pretty straightforward. For kids who have more normal run-of-the-mill syndactyly, we do some combination of a dorsal flap to line the web space and then these zigzag flaps, so you get full thickness skin over the joints. So you don't have this linear scar contracture. So the incision planning is kind of a different, you know, different algorithm for them. And I'll happy, happily talk about that more if you'd like me to. Uh, but when it comes time to actually get down to how far we can separate things, you do have to be really careful. We don't want to be injuring the nerves or the arteries. With the nerve, if the bifurcation is distal, you can neuralize those fascicles apart and get yourself more length for the separation. If the artery has a high bifurcation, I will sometimes just leave it there and stop at that level um, because I'd rather have two vessels, you know, one going to each finger and then have an opportunity to maybe revise things in the future as opposed to ligating one. But I know some people have talked about that ligating one and then, you know, putting a bulldog clamp on it, making sure the finger still looks okay and then ligating it and in order to get that full depth on the release. It just isn't the way that I, I like to approach things. Very cool. Man, I want to see some of these procedures now. Gosh. <laughs> I know. I'm it's like, well, when I come out for the flap course, I'll show you pictures. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, so kind of one of the last questions I had was you're talking a little bit about your skin incisions and can you talk a little bit more about the dorsal flap you were describing and then how you try to prevent web creep postoperatively? These are great questions. You guys have a lot of good, uh, good topics. This will be helpful for your listeners. Um, web creep is like the bane of all hand surgeons who do congenital hand and syndactyly. I think the published rates in the literature are somewhere between like two and 80%. And you're just like, if we knew what caused it, if we knew how to prevent it, if we, if we had any good plan on this, everybody would employ it. Um, to the best of our ability, I think the things that people have agreed on is trying to have good full thickness tissue lining that web space, avoiding skin graft in the web space itself, and just meticulous closure and good dressings afterwards are like the best you can do. And then get the child into it, um, like some splinting postoperatively to try and help keep that open. So then let's talk about our our 
dorsal flap. Um, we want full thickness tissue lining that space, the web space, and it's actually a much larger space than I think people appreciate. And so what I tell residents is to look at their hands, we'll mark out their metacarpal heads, and then we mark out the proximal interphalangeal joint. About two thirds of the length of that distance is about how long we want our flap to be. And we go to the midline of each digit. And so that is a very large piece of tissue. And that is sufficient usually to line the web in, in a good way. Um, and then depending on which brand or which named version of skin incisions you'd like to use, you can try and get everything closed around that. But most people will end up requiring a little bit of skin graft in those two areas adjacent to the web because it's the largest portion of the finger. And unless the child has a nearly complete separation, you know, one of those ones that's just a skin bridge between the two, um, there's really deficient skin in that in that. Um, bigger circumference more proximally. That's definitely something that I've seen. It's a much bigger area than we think every time. So big. You can definitely try and stitch it shut, but then your finger's going to be ischemic when you let the tourniquet down. So I advise just putting <laughs> that skin graft in there. Well, this has been really helpful um, for us. And I think for our listeners as well, um, kind of one question we'll end with is what advice do you have for residents or fellows interested in hand surgery or more specifically pediatric hand surgery? So, okay, let's see. One piece of advice. I was like, man, there's so many good pieces of advice. Just hang in there. <laughs> it's like the most important piece of advice for residency. But if you're really interested in hand, um, try and get yourself to some meetings and start to meet some people. I think everyone always told me when I was a trainee that plastic surgery, that surgery in general was a small world. And each year of my life, that becomes more and more true as there are people that I connect with that I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're like best friends with someone I was in med school with, or, you know, like we both trained in the same program or just like the world becomes vastly, vastly small. And so the more you can connect with people in that world and start to find your network and the people that you feel like you are in harmony with and want to be like, and want to work with, the more I think residency becomes meaningful, the more you will be be able to extract from the cases that you do because you start to have some vision and clarity for what skills and what things you need to be acquiring. And it just gives you some nice, uh, nice like light at the end of the tunnel to be like, okay, yeah, that's where I'm going. Great advice. It's uh, it is always fun to go to meetings and be like, okay, that's one day that's going to be me. So <laughs> that's the fun part. The light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Thank you again. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And I know other people will appreciate hearing about this as well. It's, it's been wonderful. We can't wait to see you. <laughs> I'm so excited. Hannah and Rosie, thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.